morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Yeah, we're doing well, aren't we? I know, the sun's out. Yes! Hey, 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 don't get too excited. It's still February 1 or 2, okay? We have four months of winter yet. You know it, too. Can anyone right now... This is going to take some getting used to a little bit. I have a little, like, where do I... <laughs> Can anyone right now imagine the Detroit Lions winning the Super Bowl? Just think about that, because I'm trying to get your brain going. You're going to need your brain a little bit today. We're beginning a new study, and I'm excited to stay. We're, we're going to step into the Gospel of John, and this will take us until the end of May. And then because of what summers are, we're going to take the summer off, not from Crossroads. One time I said that, and people literally took that literally. And they're calling me up, like complaining. I'm like, no, that's not what I meant. So we are going to maybe, maybe step into a series on the Holy Spirit this summer. And then we will uh, pick up the Gospel of John in September, probably carrying us to next Easter. Uh, you probably should have gotten a reading schedule that will take us at least through May. We give this to you because we don't want you to just come and hear sermons. Uh, this is a community that is going to learn this. And I, as a community, we're going to be reading this together and learning together. Uh, why John's gospel? Because we do not just do these kind of things randomly. Uh, we put a lot of thought into this. We never want to stay too far from the gospels. I mean, if you know Crossroads, we love the whole Bible. We love to study the whole Bible. But yet at the same time, uh, we do not want to stay too long from the Gospels. And, and, and what are the Gospels? The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, who are eyewitnesses to the life of Christ. And they each provide us with their own eyewitness account of Jesus. They're not all the same. In fact, they're very different in many ways, the four Gospels. And I know that bothers some people uh, when, when they see the, the, the differences between these four books of the Bible. Um, but imagine this. Imagine if four of us went to the big house or Spartan Stadium. <laughs> see how Michigan fans are just quieter? So just imagine, four of us went to, to, to a football game, and afterward, we wrote a story about it. Would our stories be the same? I mean, in some ways, they, 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 I think they would be the same. The important things, like maybe the big plays, who won, the final score, but a lot of it would be different. I mean, there are certain things that I would notice that you wouldn't notice. I mean, you might be noticing the cheerleaders and all of that. Uh, I'm, I'm dialed in on not even just the, the offensive line. Uh, I like to watch the coach on the sidelines. I like to watch the opposing fans. Um, a lot would be very different if four of us wrote 
a story of, of, of going to a football game. And, and that's why the gospel accounts, too, are very different. And I will say this, John's gospel is the most different from the other three gospels. Um, but don't hear me saying that it's inconsistent. John is just choosing to highlight and emphasize certain things that the other gospel writers don't. And in my opinion, this is due in part uh, because he is the last of the gospels written, and I think he's filling in and giving us this complete picture of Jesus. And listen, no one had a better seat to the game. No one sat closer to Jesus than John. Uh, we know that he is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Then we also know that with, within Jesus' 12 disciples, that Jesus had three uh, that formed kind of this inner group. John is a part of, of those three. Uh, but there is a little hint in John's gospel that I think highlights the seat that he has uh, to the life of Jesus that is like no other. Uh, it, in John 13, verse 23, it says this. This is a disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John refers to himself. Think about that. The disciple whom Jesus loved was resting on Jesus' side. Uh, the word side there uh, is the word bosom or chest. And this is taken from the last meal that Jesus is, is, is having with his disciples right before he dies. And I don't want you to just hear this. This is why we have artists. Uh, this is an artist uh, who's a disciple of Michelangelo who gives us this picture of that last meal. Look closely at it. Look at the faces of Jesus as he's teaching them. The disciples as they're all leaning in, minus Judas, look at John. John just has his head on Jesus' chest. His ear right there on Jesus' heart. For the next season, we're gonna sit at the feet of John, a man for three and a half years, gave up everything to be with Jesus 24-7, 365, who is that close to Jesus. Now John's aim in writing this gospel has to be our aim as well. In fact, one of the first stories already in the first chapter in, in John 1, 45, uh, this character, Philip and Nathaniel, who are good friends, it says Philip found Nathaniel and, and told him. He said, we found him. We found the one Moses wrote about in Torah and about whom the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Joseph. And Nathaniel says, wait a second, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And listen to what Philip says. Come and see. John's gospel is the invitation to all of us to come and see this Jesus, to behold him. Because even just a, a few verses before that, in John 1, verse 35, you have the Billy Graham of his day 
thousands of people are, are, are surrounding this person who is the forerunner to Christ. And when, when, when this, this person sees Jesus walking, he says to everybody that's gathered, look at him. Behold, see him, the Lamb of God. John chapter 4, after Jesus encounters this woman, this Samaritan woman, after this encounter with Jesus, she runs back to her village and she says to everyone, come and see this man. Truly, he is the Messiah. And this is all going to crescendo in, in John's gospel to that part where Pilate will take Jesus, present him to his accusers, dressed in a robe, crown of thorns on his head, just having been scourged and beaten all bloody. And Pilate will say to them, behold the man, see him. You know, so many people today see themselves as, as Christians. So many just attach that label to their lives. But have no idea who Christ is. And then when you add the, the narcissism of our day where, where everything starts with me, myself, and I, Christ then becomes what I want him to be what I would have him to be. And we so flippantly just fashion Jesus into our own image. We conform him to our puny, selfish thoughts. We use him to serve our agenda and dreams. And we never really consider how selfish this is or even more how foolish it is that a Jesus of our own making is no Jesus. It's a make-believe Jesus. It's a fictitious Jesus. It's us really doing fake news with ourselves. Even from those verses that we just read, think about what John wants us to see. Behold the lamb. Behold the man. See the one whom the prophets and Moses spoke about. Or that's just their way of saying the Bible. John is saying, come and see the one who the whole Bible is about. Do you know the Bible? Do you read the Bible? How can we say that we see Jesus, that we know Jesus, and not read the Bible? Listen to what Jesus says later to a crowd in John 5. I think I have this on PowerPoint. Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Jesus says, these scriptures, they testify about me. And if you believed Moses, or that's another way of saying your book, the Bible, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The book is about me, says Jesus. 
where Jesus has placed himself. He's located in this book. The whole book is about him. It's why God wrote the book. It's not just so that we could know the book, but through the book, know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Have you beheld him? Well, just as Nat and Nathaniel was invited to come and see, the whole gospel of John is an invitation to all of us to come and see Jesus. That's why John in the first chapter says, we have seen his glory, we have beheld him, we looked upon him. Because what John wants us to do is, is see the real Jesus that he saw. And the first thing that John wants to say about this Jesus, for us to know and to see, is John chapter one, the first five verses. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is God's word. You can be seated. So John opens his whole gospel uh, with these three words in the beginning. Where else have we heard these words? Genesis. These are the first three words of Genesis, or the first three words of the Bible, in the beginning. And then what in Genesis 1? In the beginning, what? God. And then what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are no words to describe those words. There are no words to describe that event in Genesis 1. I can't even stand up here and and, and even attempt to try to explain the greatest thing that ever happened. And something we hardly ever think about. But it's even why we're here right now. And it's why we are what we are. Because God created. He made the world. He made us. There's nothing greater than that. And the greatest event, when you keep reading Genesis 1, becomes even greater, because then when you read the next verse, it it tells us how God created And it wants us to know that God did not create the world out of nothing. It tells us that there was a something, and that something in the original language is called the tohu vevohu. It's what scholars call the primordial soup. It's what we call chaos. And creation is God speaking to the chaos. His word, it enters the chaos. And the tohu vevohu is transformed. 
into a world that is ordered, harmonious, stunningly beautiful in every way. Every square inch of it is thriving and flourishing. And it's all entrusted to two creatures who are made in God's image, who are godlike to Adam and Eve, to steward it all for the glory of God. This is not the world we see. This is not the world we live in. We heard it already this morning from Phil. Like the cancer, our our world, every square inch of it, is infected with the cancer of the curse. It's all in decay and it's all dying. And the older you get, the more you realize that. So when John starts his gospel with these three words, in the beginning, those three words ought to give us goosebumps. Because John is telling us that something as momentous as creation is again happening. A new genesis, a new beginning, new creation is being unleashed upon the world. God's word is once again being spoken into the chaos. The world's creator has come to remake the world. And you guys are gonna get all loud and crazy over a Super Bowl tonight. And you just stand there like, huh? Guys, this is the most exciting thing there is. I like this. John, instead of saying in the beginning God, he says in in the beginning the Word. Why the Word? Why doesn't he just say God? Well, yes, John is translating God here as the Word. But this gets us into John's mind a little bit and, and into John's world. John's gospel was originally written in the Greek language because he's writing to a Greek-speaking audience. And the Greek word here is the word logos. So it would read like this, in the beginning, the logos, and the logos was God, and the logos was with God. Now, I think this is important. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, this word logos is a word loaded with meaning, especially in the academy. The reason for this is because 500 years before Jesus, the Greek philosophers were beginning to propose this idea that there was a divine mind behind the world. And what led them to this not just that the Greco-Roman pantheons of gods were, were worse than any soap opera you can imagine, and, no, and nothing more than just superheroes. As they started to study and, and, and learn more about things like biology and mathematics and astrology, they started to see how amazingly ordered and harmonious the world is, and they concluded that there must be a divine mind behind it. And so this divine mind, which they saw as the supreme reality in in all the universe, they called that the Logos. 
And the Greek philosopher Plato, who we've talked about in the recent weeks, is, is the most responsible for developing this idea of the Logos. Remember, Plato believed that the world consisted of two parts. One part is what we uh, can see, the material, physical world. And, and, and Plato said that that part of our world is evil, it's bad. Plato said the other part of the world is, is the world that we can't see. It's that transcendent, enlightened world of the spirituality, abstract truth. Plato said this part of our world is good and pure. Plato said in the source of this world, the creator of it is the Logos, the divine mind. I don't know what you're thinking right now. Probably the Super Bowl. <laughs> I want you to see what John just did. He just took a pagan term from a pagan religion to describe what is most precious to him. Because by John's day, this idea of the, of the divine mind, of the Logos, was not just within the academy. It became popularized and became one of the fastest growing religions of the first century. We call it Gnosticism. And you might have heard a little bit about Gnosticism. Gnosticism simply means knowing. Gnostics were people who saw themselves as the truly enlightened ones, who abandoned that, that, those juvenile ideas about the Greco-Roman gods for this enlightened idea of the Logos. Now, Gnosticism wasn't just a belief, it was also a pra practice because a Gnostic denied the material world, a Gnostic beat up the physical body, and the Gnostic retreated from the world. Why? Because the physical material world is bad. And they lived their lives to conform to the abstract truths of the Logos. They were mystics, and they oozed this pride. You know, people who walk around who, who claim that they have insider knowledge that you don't have, and they say things like, well, you just don't get it. And then you say back to them, well, well, well help me understand. And they say, well, you would never understand what I know. Come on, we, those people are a dime a dozen today. Gnosticism is still alive and well in so many places, religion, politics, you name it. But does it bother you that John uses this word to describe Christ? Let's understand that Christianity, it's, it's going west into the heart of the Greco-Roman world. Churches are being birthed in every city. It's, it's literally changing the world. And John at this time of writing is living in the New York City of the Greco-Roman world in a place called Ephesus, and he's writing this gospel, yes, to Jews who have put their faith in Christ, but he's also writing it to Greeks. And the originator of this idea of the Logos, his name is Heraclitus, is from Ephesus. And John just stole their word and applied it to Jesus. Does that bother you? Well, if it does, let me say this. 
The gospel writers are doing this all the time. Take the word gospel. Where's gospel in the scriptures, the Old Testament? Maybe one place, Isaiah 52. Other than that, that word was so popular in that day, gospel. It was the, 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 the word that the emperors of Rome claimed and used, the gospel, the good news of the Pax Romana, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And the church stole that word and says, no, that's our word. Or the word son of God. Where's that in your Old Testament? You can find it. But it wasn't nearly as prevalent as, as how the Roman emperors used it. On every one of their coins would be the image of the emperor, and underneath it would be son of God. The Christians steal that and say, no, that's our word. An evangelist. Those are the runners that would go out to the city before the emperor would, would, would make his runs and do his advent. Advent isn't a Christian term. Advent is a term connected to the Caesars. And they'd send their evangelists out. The emperor is coming. And Christians stole it and said, no, that's our word. Or how about God himself? I mean, think about the temple. In the ancient world, every god had a house. That house is where the god lived. That, that house was a temple. And this is why Paul in the New Testament said those are foolish thoughts, that God would live in a house built by human hands. But when you look at the first half of the story, God lives in a house. Or how about cross? In Latin, it's the four-letter word crux. It's a swear word in that day. Why? Because in the first century, the cross was what we would see as an electric chair. It was a gas chamber. It's how the Romans, you cross us, and we hang you on one of these things to say, we win, you lose. And the God of the universe took that image and said, I want that to say, I win. You see, in this, I want us to know how desperately God wants to be known. That he's willing to be understand in our context, in our culture, on our terms, because God is not some insider, like a Gnostic, with this insider language, which is why when the church and Christians use insider language to talk about God, which we do all the time, we're not just working against the cause, but we are betraying the very heart of God. Now let's just put Gnosticism to the side. Because Genesis, John 1 verse 1, on its own, is simply stunning. Even for a Jew, they could accept John saying, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the King. 
But God? God? The one who created the world? Are you kidding? But John the Jew starts his gospel by cutting through all the chase. He gets right to the heart of it all. And in the most plain language, the language of a child, states the most amazing thing anyone could say about Jesus. Because by the end of the book, John wants you to be able to say this. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. And Jesus was, God, was with God in the beginning. And through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made. We could literally think about this for months and still not wrap our brains around it. Have you ever stop and think about the created world and all its complexity and all its beauty? I remember when Libby gave birth to our first child, Gabe. 23 years ago and some change. I didn't even know what I was gonna experience that day. When he came into the world, it was the first time in my life because the doctor looked at me and said, what's his name? I couldn't get words out. I was literally, it, it couldn't come out. And it's not just because I'm looking at this child and experiencing this explosive love, but it's just witnessing this this miracle of life. Think about the stars. David did in Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put in place, it just rocked David. David was like, I don't even know who I am. I feel so small, like a nothing. And yet the psalmist says, and he knows every star by name. The galaxies. I mean, our, our, our minds can't even begin to, to, to fathom. And then you start thinking about even time and space and all of that. And we're just talking about creation. The creator is even greater I believe if we could even comprehend with our minds just a fraction of the creator right now, all we could do is fall on our faces and worship. And we couldn't get up. And John says, it's the first, first thing he says, that's who Jesus is. Through Jesus, all things were made. If that isn't enough, you know where John blows this whole thing up? Is when you go down to verse 14, and he says, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
I mean, think about the first creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, where, where you get to that part where, where God's hands, because God comes close, and his hands go into the mud. And, and, and like a potter with clay, he shapes that mud into Adam, and the Adamah, the mud, becomes Adam, a human being. And, and now, new creation being launched. It's not just that his hands go into the mud, he becomes the mud. He enters the mud, the mess, the cancer. He takes on our flesh. He becomes one of us. You know what this means? It means the most amazing things for us as Christians. It means that God knows what it means to be human. He knows what it means to hurt. He knows what it means to be alone. He knows what it means to be disliked and hated and rejected. He knows what it means to be vulnerable. He knows what it means to lose something that you love. He knows what it means to be, to suffer. Not to a Gnostic. This is crazy talk. The Logos is, is, is this transcendent reality, immaterial, unseeable. The Logos is this unknowable, unreachable, untouchable. It's this impersonal force. Let the force be with you. John says, no. The Logos broke into our world and became one of us. He became a flesh and blood human being. He, he wants to be seen. He wants to be touched. He made his dwelling among us. That literally reads, he pitched his tent. He came to the neighborhood. And John says, and we have beheld his glory. We have seen him. As he starts John, another letter that he writes, he says, our hands have touched him, our ears have heard him, we have beheld his glory. And now we've come full circle. Because John's invitation is to come and to see, it's to behold him, it's to behold the man. Do you see Jesus? Is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus that you pray in God's name to? Is this the Jesus that you follow? Is this the Jesus that we sing to on Sunday morning? Because John wants us to see him, to behold him. And now let me take you to his grand purpose for writing this gospel, which is the last verse before his PS in John 21. Last verse in John 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A belief we're going to come to see is a strong theme in this book. In fact, John is going to use it 98 times, but this is what I want us to know right now. It is never used as a noun because to John, belief is not a doctrine. Belief is always used as a verb. It's something that we do. 
Because what belief is, is this act of trusting someone or something with our very life. And that is why John is writing this gospel. He wants us to come and see him, to behold him, to behold the man so that we would believe in him, that we could trust him with our very life. Because John says that when we do that, we will have life in his name. Now, what kind of life are we talking about? Because that is another word that John is going to use a lot, and the Greek language has two words for life. One is bios, from which we get the word biology, which is the study of living things. Bios speaks of life as mere existence. But listen, just because you are breathing doesn't mean that you're thriving or flourishing. You could have bios and be a zombie. Which is why the Greeks have a second word for life, which is zoe, and zoe speaks to the quality of life. Think about those times in life where you just felt the most alive. You just felt like you were thriving and flourishing. That's zoe. This is the word that John uses. Zoe is what the human heart seeks. Zoe is what we crave. Zoe is what we all live for. Zoe is what every Super Bowl commercial tonight will be about. In some way or form or fashion, it will promise you Zoe. Get this, buy this, and you'll have life. Life to the full. Look at us. Look at all the things that we turn to, the things that we pursue, the things that we have to have. Material things, entertainment, forms of pleasure, relationship, jobs, success, beauty, notoriety, likes. We think that if we just get enough of whatever that thing it is that we're seeking, that we will have life. Yeah, look at us. Never has a culture had so much. Never has a culture been able to indulge in so much, and yet never has a culture been so unhappy. What's wrong with us? We don't know life. We don't possess life. Let me end with this. Augustine, who might be one of the top five shapers and thinkers in the church. He lived in the fourth century. He spent his whole life looking for life. He did this as a Roman. He did this as a scholar. He did this as a philosopher, as a statesman. But mostly he did this as a pleasure seeker because Augustine says how he threw himself into sex and into Roman orgies, those Roman feasts and parties as a drunk. And he became an addict to the life of sensual indulgence. But Augustine had a mother who loved Jesus, who every day for seven years got on her knees to pray for her son. One day Augustine was sitting on a park bench and he was weeping 
and his soul was in torment. He was overwhelmed with shame and depression. His life was in full-blown despair in light of the choices that he had made and the person he had become. In that place, he heard a voice. He says, like a child singing, take up and read. And he heard that voice again, take up and read. And he looked around, and there he saw a book. The book was the Bible. And he just did one of these. He just opened it up, pointed at the text, and it was Romans 13, 13 to 14, which says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your selfish nature. He said at that moment, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he said joy just flooded his soul. And John says, in the text we read today about Jesus, in Jesus is life, zoe. And that life is the light of men. He did not just come to the world to forgive us, although he did. He came to the world to offer us life. How is Jesus' life? That's what we're going to learn even next week and the weeks to come. I think it's going to blow you away. But can I just say now what Augustine said years later after he threw his life into Christ and made Christ his life? He said this, God has made us for himself, and our souls are restless until they rest in him. Rest. Remember John? That's what God made us for. So we could just rest upon his heart. By the way, how many people do you let do that to you? Just rest on your chest. Only my wife, my kids when they were younger. It's people I love most. Whether you know this or not, God made us. He made you to rest upon his heart because he loves us with all of his heart. And this is what believing is. It's resting upon Jesus. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what you have attained. You will be restless until you rest in him. God, as we study this amazing part of your book, may we come, may we see, may we truly behold him that we would believe in him so that we could rest in him. God, do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.